So originally, um, there was going to be one more week in the Proverbs series. For what that's worth, if you have been with us, you know we went through um, several months of a series in Proverbs, but several weeks back, um, I was kind of thinking and praying about the preaching schedule and um, an idea to do a two-week series, in a sense, um, leading into Thanksgiving um, came to mind. I shared it with the elders, and everybody was on board. So we're not going to necessarily use this language in the titles of the messages this week and next week, but the two weeks, this week and next week, could be summarized as fast and pray, feast and praise. Okay, so this week, in a sense, is fast and pray. It's, it's an opportunity for us over the course of two weeks to tune our hearts to hunger for the right things and to be grateful for the right things, to praise God for the right things. So this first week, this morning and leading into this week, is a focus on our desperation for God from Psalm 63. And as a follow-up, like one of the applications, this coming week we're going to encourage the whole church family to fast at some point this week that God would increase our hunger for him and satisfy us in him. A little bit more about that later. Then next Sunday, Eugene is going to preach Psalm 100. If you're familiar with that psalm, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Um, Fitting preparation for the week of Thanksgiving as we feast and praise. All right, so Psalm 63 this morning. Um, You can turn there. You can find it in the Pew Bible if you're using that. Find it on page 479. So Psalm 63, we're going to, I'll read it, um, and then we'll dive in. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped." So the message um, this morning is titled, What to Do When You're Desperate. And main idea, if we were to just kind of encapsulate the theme here in a short sentence, when you cling to God, you can rejoice no matter the desperation of your circumstances. When you cling to God, you and I, we can rejoice in God no matter the desperation of our circumstances. So, here we go. What to do when you're desperate. Now, some of you might say, well, I'm not desperate, so I'm just going to check out and, you know, 
take a nap. I would encourage you not to do that. So you will be desperate soon if you're not desperate now. In this world, you will have trouble, and it can come like that. And if you're not desperate, there may be a sense in which you should be. You and me, we are desperate in our need for God, whether we feel it or not. We're more desperate than we think. So you may not be circumstantially desperate right now, but you and I are always spiritually desperate. Like Jesus says in John 15, apart from me you can do nothing. And actually one of the reasons why we tend to grow the most and experience the greatest intimacy with God when we go through suffering and trials is because in those times, we're most in touch with our need, right? So actually, not feeling desperate and feeling like, oh, everything's fine, can be dangerous because we can lose touch with our needs. So when we feel, when we experience how needy we are, it leads us to lean into God in ways that we haven't before, ways that we normally don't, and we find out how good it is to be near God. So this psalm is for all of us, regardless of what your circumstances are right now. And just a quick little note on the, on the outline, I've made some updates. So we're gonna actually sneak point number five into the end of point number three, so you can just kinda like scratch point number five. We've only got four this morning, all right? So first point, desperate in the present. Look at verse one. The superscription says, a psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So he's restless and desperate in every way, his whole being, his soul, his flesh, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So he's in the wilderness of Judah. He's desperate for God. We actually have to look down to verses 9 and 10 to see that he's being pursued by enemies, okay? Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth and be given over to the power of the sword, etc. So David is under pressure. The heat is on. He's running for his life. Now, more than once, David was in the wilderness being pursued by enemies. So the first thought might be, oh, this is probably like when Saul was after him, right? Because that happened in the wilderness. Remember the cave and cutting off the corner of Saul's robe when he was in there relieving himself, didn't know that David and his men were in there. Well, actually, most likely that's not the situation in view here. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, he says, but the king shall rejoice in God, speaking of himself. So my enemies are seeking to destroy my life, but you're going to take care of them, and the king is going to rejoice in God. So David wasn't yet king when Saul was after him. So the situation in view here is almost certainly another time when David was in the the wilderness being pursued by enemies. Any other ideas? I won't have you raise your hands. Um, Remember when Absalom rebelled and conspired to usurp David's throne? You can read about it in 2 Samuel 15 to 18. So King David, what did he do? He fled Jerusalem lest Absalom overtake him and bring ruin to the city. So the escape route we read in 2 Samuel 15 and 16 was through the wilderness. 
So this psalm was inspired by God during those dire circumstances. For David, it was like a lose-lose situation at the time. To give up the kingdom to Absalom would spell disaster for the kingdom. Because Absalom was a fool of a son. And his rule would be ruinous to the kingdom. But to quash the rebellion would mean the death of his son and much bloodshed, which is actually what happened, if you know the story. So, lose-lose. David is desperate. And look what he does in the midst of his desperation. He clings to God in desperation. And he's actually able to rejoice despite desperate circumstances. And he does it by looking back in faith to God's past faithfulness and looking forward in faith to God's future faithfulness. So despite desperate circumstances, being like spiritually dehydrated and weary, David knows he will feast and be refreshed and satisfied and he will rejoice. So the main idea, again, for us is when you cling to God, you can rejoice no matter the desperation of your circumstances. So, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So he's in the wilderness, dry and weary land, no water. His circumstances sap his soul of life and vitality. He's hungry and thirsty, but not so much for food and drink. He is keenly aware of his desperate need for God. He's not going to get relief or refreshment or strength from his circumstances. Things are bad. It's a lose-lose situation. But his circumstances can't take from him or keep from him what he needs most. He has God. And so he earnestly seeks him. Oh God, you are my God. Even a lose-lose situation can't take God from him. So, oh God, you are my God. Isn't that where we should begin whenever we're in desperate circumstances? Sounds like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And these are maybe familiar words, but like this is awesome that we can say this. Oh God, you are my God. That is awesome that we can say that, that it's true. If you are in Christ this morning, you have a God, the one and only God, and the one and only God is your God. And that God is for you and not against you. And so God is with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter what your circumstances are. That is wonderful. That's where, that's where this psalm begins, but in a sense, it's like the spring from which everything flows. All the grace of this psalm flows from that beginning point. Derek Kidner writes this. He says, The longing of these verses is not the groping of a stranger feeling his way towards God, but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. The simplicity and boldness of you are my God is the secret of all that follows, since this relationship is the heart of the covenant 
from the patriarchs to the present day, and its implications are endless. So, is God your God? This is an allusion to the covenant formula. Like, I will be your God, and you will be my people. First established with Abraham back in Genesis 17. This is a covenant of sheer grace. God called Abram when he was a pagan moon worshiper in Ur of the Chaldeans. Remember how God ratified that covenant in Genesis 15 in the ancient Near East when people would make a covenant, they would bind themselves with curses if they broke the covenant. So you remember that weird thing where God told Abraham to take animals and cut them in half and lay them out? And then the smoking pot comes and just the smoking pot went through the animal pieces. What in the world's going on there? Normally, both parties in a covenant would walk through the pieces. And what they were saying by doing that is, if we break this covenant, may we be torn asunder like these animals. But only God went through. It's a covenant by sheer grace. And Abraham trusted in that sheer grace of God. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How much more so for us? By nature, we are dead in our sins. We are enemies of God. We deserve the curse of God. We've already broken the law. We've broken the covenantal stipulations in a sense of being God's image bearers. Jesus came and took the curse so that we could be blessed, so that God could be our God. He left his father's side, took on flesh, and became a slave even to the point of death on a cursed cross so that God could be our God and we could be his people now and forever. He was forsaken that we might never be forsaken, even in the wilderness, even in the most desperate circumstances. He was torn that we might be healed. This is the sheer grace of the gospel. You can't earn it. You can only see your need of him and receive it. So is God your God? If you came in and he wasn't your God, you can walk out with God as your God, with you and for you, through Christ, for the rest of your days and on into eternity. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Cling to him. And God will be your God. He is your God, and you are his, his beloved child, his precious and honored saint. That's where, that is where it's at. That is the fountainhead of all of the grace of this psalm. And as for David's desperation, the threats, the enemies that we face, they're going to look different for us, right? I don't imagine any of us are going to face, you know, we're king and one of our sons wants to kill us and, you know, usurp the throne. That's probably not going to happen like a one-to-one, -one, you know, application situation, right? But we've got plenty of enemies nonetheless. The evil one prowls around like a roaring lion in the wilderness seeking whom he may devour like Jesus in the wilderness, battling Satan. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Our circumstances can also leave us desperate. So we do have enemies, spiritual enemies, 
maybe also human enemies. Our circumstances can leave us desperate as well when the heat is turned up with health concerns, mental health concerns, financial health concerns, relational trouble, vocational trouble, etc., etc. Or again, if you're being persecuted for your faith in Jesus, all the ways that trial and tribulation can turn the heat up and make us desperate. When the heat gets turned up, when we are desperate, it can lead us to God or it can lead us away from God. Only when you cling to God in desperation can you rejoice no matter your circumstances. So maybe you need to hear this this morning because you are running elsewhere in the midst of your desperation. I mean, we can easily self-medicate, right? We can run to food and alcohol and sleep and entertainment and porn and retail therapy and social media and on and on, all kinds of coping mechanisms that are really substitute counterfeit gods. false refuges, false helps. And when we run to them, we actually are feeding our flesh, feeding our sinful nature, and feeding on things that can't ultimately satisfy us. True life only comes from actually starving the sinful nature and feeding your spirit on God and his grace. We can also take matters into our own hands, you know. So that's kind of like flight, where we flee to false refuges. We can also fight, kind of take matters into our own hands. Things get desperate. So we're like little cosmic survivors, you know. We scramble to try to pull every string, take control, fight off, beat down, ward off the threats, and we try to be our own savior. It's like a more sophisticated version of the toddler reaction. I can do it myself. I can't trust or rely on anybody. I've got trust issues. We can relate to God that way. Flight and fight. But actually, you realize we are made for fight and flight. Just not that fleshly kind. We need to fight the good fight of the faith, fight sin and Satan. And we need to flee, flee the false refuges and flee to our strong tower, our refuge, and our strength. When the heat gets turned up, when we are desperate, it can lead us to God. And only when we cling to God in desperation can we rejoice no matter our circumstances. So Psalm 63, David clings to God. He seeks God earnestly in the midst of his desperation. And he shows us how to fight, do fight and flight, the fight and fight of, fl- of faith. So first he does this by looking back in faith. Point number two, satisfied in the past. Look at 63.2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So David had been displaced from Jerusalem, right? He's fled Jerusalem. He's in the wilderness. He can't go and worship God in the sanctuary. He remembers when he beheld the glory and the power of God. The remembrance of those glimpses of God's glory are extremely encouraging to him. So Alec Motier said it this way. He said, David has past spiritual experiences and memories ready at hand to fortify him for present emergencies. The force of what David says is this. When formerly I experienced this longing, you responded to me in the sanctuary, revealing yourself in power and glory. Let it be so now in the desert. Do it again. 
So he's looking back in faith. He's letting the past faithfulness of God, past glimpses of the power and glory of God, serve his faith in the present, in the midst of his difficult circumstances. He's saying, I sought you in the past. You showed up and showed me your power and your glory. I'm seeking you in the present. Please show up again with your power and your glory. So when you are in desperate circumstances, brothers and sisters, where do you run? Do you run to God? Do you earnestly seek him? And when you do, do you ponder his past faithfulness? Like it's so easy to just spin and spin on the what ifs and all manner of anxiety and worry. We can be paralyzed with all that's going wrong. We can be paralyzed by regrets, like all these do-overs in our heads. If only I would have. If only, and we're, we're, we're looking back, but only wishing, you know, we had a, a reset button. And we, f- we fail to find our footing in the firm faithfulness of God, who is our God. So, Listen, have you ever been in a tough patch before and God has been with you and gotten you through? Well, the next time you're in a tough patch, look back and let his past faithfulness encourage you to trust him in the present because he's going to do it again. He's going to be faithful to you again. So when we're desperate in the present, we would do well to look back on the past faithfulness of God. Let those remembrances serve our faith and, and you know what? If you're early on in your Christian life, this would be a good call to like go sit down with a, a seasoned saint because they've got lots of like, like a whole cache of God's faithfulness to draw from and ask them to tell you some stories of God's faithfulness in their life and you can get a glimpse of God's power and glory in their life and God can do the same in yours. So the God of our past deliverances is our God now in the present, and we can trust him no matter our circumstances. We see this dynamic again in verses 5 to 7. David prays, My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. So here David is talking about a time when he couldn't sleep. What does he do? Well, he doesn't spin and spin on the mental hamster wheel of anxiety. He doesn't wear himself out with what ifs. He doesn't stress himself out with catastrophizing in his mind, you know, like worst case scenario, worst case scenario. No, he remembers God. He meditates on God. He remembers how God has been his help. In fact, the help word is a, like, extended form of the noun. So, like, such a help. You've been such a help. He rehearses God's past help and his past faithfulness. Like Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Remembering, rehearsing, God's grace, his past faithfulness, pondering the character and the goodness of God. And what ends up happening? He blesses God. He praises God. He has joy in God. 
His mouth begins to praise God with joyful lips. So, what do you do when you can't sleep? Yeah, pray. That's good. Yep. I would say, don't count sheep. Okay? Instead, count the reasons why you love being a sheep in God's flock. Fixate on the shepherd and ponder his character and his goodness and his faithful track record. Actually, I'll refrain telling you the story, but I had a chance to apply this sermon last night um, when I could not sleep in the, let's see, the third watch of the night. Um, so anyway, so what if, what if a sleepless night could become more of a gift than a good night's sleep? Now, obviously, there's a limit to that, right? Because, like, if you didn't get a good night's sleep, like, over and over and over again, like, nothing is going to substitute for just getting the sleep. But you know what I'm saying here. Have you ever contributed to your sleeplessness, your inability to sleep, because you were fretting about how badly you needed to fall asleep? Like, if I don't get a good night's sleep, like, that's really going to help you fall asleep, right? What if the next time you can't sleep, especially when it's because of anxiety and fear, desperate circumstances, what if you looked at it as an opportunity to meditate on God's character and his faithfulness and to cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He's with you. He's up, giving his ear to your cry. He wants you to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to him because he wants to give you his peace that passes understanding to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. What if God wants you to find a deeper peace than mere circumstantial answers by keeping you up to meet with him? And perhaps, it, perhaps it's worth saying, you know, just begging God over and over again to help you fall asleep isn't the end goal here, you know? He doesn't want to just show up and show, that, show you that he can answer your prayers, you know, for sleep. He wants to show you that he is enough for your desperate circumstances. His grace is sufficient for whatever you're going through. So when the anxieties race, when the fears race, the uncertainties abound, remember God, who he is, what he's done, what he promises to do. So don't get stuck in replay mode, you know, looking back in endless regretful replays and paralysis. Go back to remember, to rehearse God's character and his faithfulness. But don't just look back. We also need to look forward in faith. Not forward in anxiety and what ifs and fear, but forward to remember and rehearse God's character and his promises. Look at point number three, satisfied in the future. Again, let's look at verses three to seven here. Let's see where David goes. And as we read through these verses, just note all the future tenses. There's so much confidence in this psalm. Again, in the midst of dire circumstances. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Even in the wilderness, even when he's been hunted by an enemy who should be a loyal son. So I will bless you as long as I live. That's all in the future. Again, whether you give or take away, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands 
You can see how I will lift up my hands is parallel with I will bless you. So it's a, it's a praise. It's a lifting up your soul to God, commit, committing yourself to him. It's allowing your hands to join your tongue in worshiping and crying out to God. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on, on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, place of protection, I will sing for joy. So here he is, David, desperate in his present circumstances. He seeks God earnestly. He looks back in faith, and because God is his God, because God's steadfast love is better than life, his lips will praise God as long as he lives. And David knows he will be satisfied by God as with fat and rich food. Like, what a contrast to verse 1. Like, I am starving here, spiritually. I am dehydrated. Like, my flesh is fainting. And here, I'm going to be satisfied. God is able to spread a table in the wilderness. He must be able to prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies and anoint our heads with oil and cause our cups to overflow, even in the valley of the shadow of death. So again, David's life in danger, and he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Just stop and think how important it is to be able to say that, to believe that. Just think of how believing that frees you and empowers you. Like, all right, what's the worst that could happen? Could die. Although I can understand that there are some things that could be worse than death. So I, I don't say that flippantly. But you could die. Okay. Can't separate you from his steadfast love. It's better than life. Is the steadfast love of God better than life to you and me? You remember in Philippians 3, Paul said, whatever gain I had, you know, my spiritual resume as a Pharisee of Pharisees and count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's all rubbish compared to gaining Christ. I just want to gain Christ. Well, think about that, and then think about what he said in chapter 1. Paul's in prison when he writes the book of Philippians. And he writes to the Philippians and says, it's my eager expectation and the hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether I live or whether I die, by life or death. Why? Because to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me, steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. So if I die, more Christ. If I live, fruitful labor for Christ. What are you going to do to that guy? If we believe this, what are they going to do to us? Like, throw your worst at us. We're safe. We can rejoice in the Lord always, even in dire circumstances. Or Psalm 73. When, when the psalmist finally gets reoriented, because he was struggling there deeply in Psalm 73, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever because your steadfast love is better than life. You are my portion. And even if I die, I don't lose you. In fact, I'm face to face with you. So if we look by faith on the future faithfulness of God and the fact that nothing can separate us from his love, he will never leave us nor forsake us. His steadfast love is better than life. We will be able to rejoice even in the midst of desperate circumstances. We can be confident and satisfied even in the present, even in the wilderness, because our confidence is in God for the future. Here's where we could sneak in point number five, verses nine through 11. At the end, basically, part of that satisfaction in the future is God's gonna deal with the enemies. I don't have to take those matters into my own hands. I can leave that with him. So you can consider that some more on your own. But again, back to the main point, when we cling to God in our desperation, you're able to rejoice despite our circumstances. We can do it by looking back in faith on God's past faithfulness, looking forward in faith on God's future promised faithfulness. Despite desperate circumstances, like David's here, we will feast and be satisfied and rejoice. So in the wilderness, David was famished and, famished and yet satisfied. He was dehydrated and thirsty and refreshed. He's weary and renewed. It's true for David. It can be true for us. So when you cling to God, you can rejoice no matter the desperation of your circumstances. So church, bottom line, cling to God. Point number four, verse eight. In the present, here we go. My soul clings to you. It's the same word for cleave, you know, in Genesis 2.24. Man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And also, it's literally like cleave after you. Like, I'm following hard in hot pursuit. So, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So, here's a call for us, you and me, to cling to God like a baby clings to, his, to her mother. Here's a call to follow hard after God like a, maybe, I don't mean this to sound trite, but like, like a dog after a squirrel. Deep need, deep desire, desperate pursuit. Thankfully, it all doesn't depend on us. Your right hand upholds me. Do you see it there? Verse eight. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. What a summary of perseverance in the Christian life. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Kind of like Philippians 2. We've already gone to Philippians for some help with the Apostle Paul. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We can work it out because God is at work in us. We can cling to him because his right hand is upholding us. Or Philippians 3.12 Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I'm already his. I want more of him. 
I want to make it my own because I already belong to Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, let's cling to God this week, and not just this week, obviously. We may need to starve the flesh. We may need to feed our appetite for God. It's easy for it to get dulled. We're kind of stuffed with the white bread of the world. We don't have much room left. It's easy to be distracted and, you know, like social media tidbits and all kinds of stuff online and and entertainment, and we just don't have any hunger left. Which, again, is a reason to fast from food, maybe from other things, in order to sharpen your hunger. Have you ever tasted a carrot after fasting for a day or so? Like, you might always need ranch dressing on a carrot because a carrot's just a carrot. But then if you fast, then you eat the carrot, and you're like, man, that's amazing because your palate was cleansed and awakened. And sometimes desperate circumstances do this for our souls. It, like, tears a hole in us, and we realize how needy and empty and hungry and thirsty we are. But actually, hunger can do it too. Fasting can express your hunger, like you could be so burdened you can barely eat. So fasting happens almost naturally, I guess you could say. But it can also be chosen to awaken and sharpen your hunger for the right things. You can choose hunger in order to seek a deeper satisfaction because you have a more fundamental need more of God. So, just really practically this week, take a meal or a day and give the time that you would normally give to preparing a meal or eating, well, preparing a meal and eating a meal to meet with God, to commune with God, to feed on his word, to pray and pour out your heart to him. I mean, just not eating is not some sort of magical formula for earning points with God. I mean, if you've never fasted, I'll actually send out a little kind of primer for fasting tomorrow um, that might be helpful. Maybe you want to skip dinner on Wednesday and then spend time in communion with God and then join us for prayer meeting from 7 to 8. Edith Schaefer, um, Labrie, Francis Schaefer, the apologist of last century, she wrote this. Is fasting ever a bribe to get God to pay more attention to the petitions? No, a thousand times no. It is simply a way to make clear that we sufficiently reverence the amazing opportunity to ask help from the everlasting God, the creator of the universe, to choose to put everything else aside and concentrate on worshiping, asking for forgiveness, and making our requests known, considering his help more important than anything we could do ourselves in our own strength and with our own ideas. So let's fast and pray to be satisfied in God. And then we'll feast and praise the God who alone can satisfy. If there's any cynicism or unbelief that you might still be clinging to or is clinging to you, it's a really interesting contrast in Psalm 78 as we draw this to a close. It's actually a merciful warning. So you remember... Israelites are brought out of Egypt, you know, tons of grace from God, miraculous signs and wonders, the faithfulness of God, just unbelievable. 
Psalm 78 says, In the daytime he led them with a cloud, and all the night with fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness, gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock, caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert, in the wilderness. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They were hungry for the wrong things. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? So you can be in really dire circumstances and maybe you feel like God didn't show up the last time you were struggling and you're just like, why bother? Can God, you know, spread a table in the wilderness? Doesn't seem like he's done it in the past. Don't let the desperation lead you to doubt his goodness. He's the good shepherd. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, he's with us and he can lead us to green pastures and quiet waters and restore our souls. So brother, sister, you and I, we're desperate for God, whether we realize it, feel it or not, as we come in this morning. Ask yourself, what am I hungry for? Like really, what am I desiring deeply? What do I want? What am I desperate for? Am I hungry for God? Do I want to know God? Or do I just want to use him like a tool to get the things I want and avoid the things I don't want? Let's earnestly seek him this week. Is God's love better than life to you? Let's earnestly seek him and cling to him this week that it may be so. And what are you going to do the next time you can't sleep? Earnestly seek him and cling to him. Rehearse his past help. Remind yourself of his promised help. Listen, our great God has more satisfaction and joy and rejoicing waiting for us. Let's cling to him. Spurgeon said this, London pastor of the 19th century said, our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle, Metropolitan Tabernacle was the name of the church, have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. May it be again. Let's pray. Oh God, would you please tune our hunger. Tune our spiritual taste buds. Show us, help us to feel and experience our need. We are desperate for you. Make us desperate for you. Make us the right kind of hungry and thirsty. Give us both the longing and the confidence of Psalm 63 and satisfy our souls do it this week. Satisfy us with the rich food of your grace and your glory, your help and your power, your love and your protection. Satisfy us with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.